Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and a special guest. Together, we'll trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage, and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Chapter 9. Zero Regrets On a cold night in January of 2004, San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom peered down from the rafters of the U.S. Capitol at President George W. Bush. It was a fluke of timing that Newsom happened to be in Washington, D.C. for Bush's State of the Union address. Just a month earlier, he'd won a bitter mayoral race, in which he'd been widely disparaged for being too conservative, at least by San Francisco standards. But now the election was behind him, and he could turn to governing and political negotiations. A few weeks into his new job, he flew to Washington, D.C. to meet with national Democratic leadership, including House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, to whom he was related by marriage through an aunt. After some pleasant introductions and meetings with national Democratic leaders, Newsom planned to head home on Tuesday, January 20th. But Pelosi caught him at the last minute to extend a special invitation. Would he like to sit in the gallery for the President's State of the Union speech that night? I was there, Newsom shrugged, remembering it years later. I thought it would be fun. He took a ticket intended for Paul Pelosi, the minority leader's husband, and got in line along with the other husbands and wives and assorted guests. Slowly but surely, the line filed into the cavernous house chamber, a palatial room that's usually home to a legislative body, but would tonight become the set of a television show. Newsom was to be a member of the studio audience. The State of the Union isn't so much an aspect of governance as it is a bid for attention. The speechifying goes back to the country's earliest days. George Washington delivered annual messages to Congress starting in 1789, and the practice seems to have caught on. As political moves go, nothing that a president says in a State of the Union these days is a surprise. At most, it's a branding exercise, rehashing what everyone already knows to be the president's posture and reminding voters why they made the right choice. As Newsom looked over the railing of the gallery, gazing upon a sea of vigorous handshakes and American flag lapel pins, he didn't expect to hear anything too earth-shaking. Down below, House members paced impatiently in a cluster along either side of the aisle, with Republicans on one side and Democrats on the other. Many had been standing there for hours, since there are no assigned seats, and coats draped over chairs are confiscated by security. Like teenagers at a concert, they simply had to stake a claim on their chair that morning and find some way to pass the time. Members of Congress seldom tolerate a wait for anything, but to be seen shaking hands with the president as he walks down the aisle, they were willing to endure a few hours of seat-saving. Newsom took in the black Italian marble columns flanking the speaker's platform, the walnut panel walls punctuated by yet more marble pillars, and the surging crowd of giddy representatives below. There were probably around two to three hundred people in attendance, and about a hundred more up in the gallery that topped the four walls of the chamber. Before he had entered, a staffer handed Newsom a printout of the president's speech, and he thumbed through it as he waited for the speech to get underway. Abruptly, a bellowing voice called from the chamber floor. Mr. Speaker, boomed Sergeant-at-Arms Paul Livingwood, the President of the United States. Newsom stood along with the rest of the crowd and began to applaud as George W. Bush strutted down the aisle, nudged along by security and cameramen. Members of Congress leaned forward, thrusting their hands toward him, or clapping the President on the back, eager for voters back home to see them in close contact with the star of the show. Bush paused for only a moment or two as he passed each adoring fan, shaking a hand or delivering a quick side-kiss to female colleagues. Everyone beamed or cheered or stared at him as he passed, like a bride making her entrance at a wedding. 
Bush made his way up onto the speaker's rostrum, waving gleefully at the crowd. He grinned his squinty little grin, then launched into the night's political pandering disguised as serious business. America this evening is a nation called to great responsibilities, he called out, and we are rising to meet them. Today, Bush's 2004 State of the Union reads as a strange, sometimes nutty time capsule. It was essentially a stump speech with an intended shelf life of just 10 months. Its primary purpose was to carry the president to re-election that November. It was essentially a monument to bad ideas that sounded comforting in 2004. Bush bragged that we have come through recession, this economy is strong and growing stronger, oblivious to an impending subprime mortgage crisis that would soon decimate the economy. He boasted about the war in Iraq since voters were not yet fed up with the interminable fighting. He endorsed abstinence-only sex education, a failed program premised on the idea that teenagers will curb their sex drives if an adult advises them to do so. He scolded sports teams for not ending steroid use, an issue that had been in the headlines for the last few weeks and was soon to fade from public consciousness. As Bush raved, Newsom flipped through the printed speech. His eye fell on a sentence near the last page. A strong America must also value the institution of marriage. He knew exactly what that meant. It was a reference to what was about to happen in Massachusetts. Ninia and Janur's Hawaii lawsuit had been undone not in court, but by a voter-approved constitutional amendment that short-circuited their claims for equal protection. It was an anguishing last-minute defeat, since until it was rewritten, the Hawaii Constitution could have been interpreted to require marriage equality. After that defeat, national gay organizers had regrouped and decided to try again, this time in a state where the Constitution would be harder to edit. They hit on Massachusetts, collected a few plaintiffs, and filed suit in 2001. After three years of legal wrangling, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that the state would have to let gays and lesbians marry. Anti-equality groups scrambled to amend the state constitution as they had in Hawaii. But they discovered that the blue state legislature had no appetite for homophobic amendments, and attempts to block marriage failed. Weddings were due to begin a few months after the State of the Union in May of 2004, the first legal, state-sanctioned same-sex marriages in American history. Activist judges, Bush warned, have begun redefining marriage by court order, without regard for the will of the people or their elected representatives. If judges insist on forcing their arbitrary will upon the people, the only alternative left to the people would be the constitutional process. In other words, Bush was saying, if they couldn't get away with amending every state constitution, he'd support an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Newsom shifted unhappily in his seat, gazing around the room. As is the custom with the State of the Union speeches, every few paragraphs were punctuated with exhausting standing and clapping over and over and over. Though he didn't care much for what Bush said, Newsom joined the rest of the audience in standing to applaud out of respect for the office. But the deeper Bush waded into social issues, the harder it became to clap. Out of the corner of his eye, Newsom spotted Senator Ted Kennedy sitting down on the floor, directly in the president's line of sight. Like Newsom, Kennedy was reading along in a printout of the speech, but unlike Newsom, Kennedy remained seated, his hands fiddling at his neck in annoyance, even when everyone around him rose to clap. Wait a minute, Newsom thought. I don't have to stand. And so he didn't, a few minutes later, when Bush thumped the podium, stared intently at Congress, and said, Our nation must defend the sanctity of marriage. While conservatives stood to cheer, Newsom, Kennedy, and a handful of other lawmakers simply sat, uncomfortable and unable to respond with anything other than mute frustration. Newsom would later describe this as an aha moment. As the brand new mayor sat in the gallery, his mind raced, trying to figure out a response to Bush's attack on the gay and lesbian families back home in San Francisco.
After the speech was over, Bush glided from the platform into a storm of applause and handshakes, and the audience slowly shuffled out of the House chamber. This was a big night for politicking, a sort of political Oscar night when the Capitol comes alive with the kind of deal-making that could make the career of an ambitious rising politician from a major U.S. city. The plan was for Newsom to join other Democrats back in Pelosi's office for a reception, discussion, further introductions, and general disapproval of Bush's nonsense. Meanwhile, Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Tom Daschle would deliver the Democratic response to the State of the Union. Their prepared speeches would address foreign policy, taxes, and health care. There was to be no mention of marriage from the Democratic Party. As Newsom followed the crowd down the hall, Bush's words seemed to chase him. He found himself trapped in a tight crush of conservative Congress creatures, all triumphantly parroting Bush's rhetoric. The lawmakers were particularly giddy about the opportunity to score points against the homosexual agenda, and Newsom fumed as they sang Bush's praises at each other. I wanted to introduce myself as a San Francisco mayor, he recalled, because I knew it would be spiteful just to introduce myself. They were so gleeful. And that was his breaking point. Abruptly, Newsom turned, separating himself from the crowd and escaping through an empty wing of the U.S. Capitol. The hallways in this direction were completely empty, with not even a security guard in sight. Everyone was busy packing the offices and meeting rooms on the other side of the building. His footsteps echoed down hallway after hallway until he eventually found an exit and stepped out into the frigid night air. It was in the mid-twenties and blustery that evening in Washington, D.C., the winter air dry and biting as he turned on his phone to make a call. Three thousand miles away in San Francisco, Steve Kawa picked up. Hey, said Newsom, we have to do something about what the president said on this constitutional amendment. Gavin's chief of staff, Steve Kawa, had moved to San Francisco in the late fall of 1991, having grown up in the little mill town of Drake at Massachusetts near his birthplace of Lowell. His background is a quintessential American success story. His parents were immigrants who worked in textile mills. His parents paved streets and drove buses. With five siblings, he was the first in his family to attend a four-year college. He earned a political science degree while working as a bartender, dishwasher, deliveryman, and graveyard shift security guard. Just out of school, Kawa moved to San Francisco, and barely out to a few family members, he took a low-rung job at City Hall, working his way up to become the first openly gay chief of staff in San Francisco history. Kawa's thick Boston accent and low, gravelly intonation seem more suited to a hitman than a mayor's office. It's the sort of voice you'd expect to hear casually mentioning that he's sending over some guys to break your kneecaps. But that's not why he enjoyed a fearsome reputation at City Hall. Sometimes called the Shadow Mayor, Kawa was known for cutting tough deals and enforcing the administration's will with fierce loyalty to whoever happened to be occupying the city's executive office. He went up against unions on contract negotiations and negotiated city budgets with the Mercurial Board of Supervisors. He was also, along with his partner Dan, a father to two kids, and he was in no hurry to get married. After all, he'd already gotten married once. It was an unofficial ceremony in 1995. They met at a gym two years earlier through a mutual workout partner, Bevan Dufty, who would later go on to become a city supervisor, and hadn't been apart since. Dan was one of six kids from a German-Irish Catholic family in Wisconsin, and every single one of his boisterous relatives had come to their 1995 wedding. Steve had five siblings of his own in a Polish-Irish Massachusetts clan, and none of his family had attended the ceremony. For a kid growing up in the 70s, marriage was less than a dream. It was simply impossible. And he didn't think he needed it. For Dan and I, we recognized pretty much from the day we met that we were meant to be together, he told me. Who needed state recognition? They declared their love for each other a decade ago, without any help from the government. Their friends knew they were a family. Their co-workers knew. Fragments of their families were supportive and more were coming around. 
It was a big deal for us in 1995, he recalled. When we said we were going to spend the rest of our lives together as a couple, we meant it. We truly meant it. And that, he figured, was all they needed. When the phone rang that night, Kawa had just finished watching the speech at home with Dan. Their kids were tucked away in bed, their youngest not even a year old. It was a tough state of the union to listen to, Kawa told Newsom from across the country. Steve, I'm going to be back tomorrow, Newsom said. We've got to do something about it. What do you mean? Kawa asked. Well, let's get everyone together, said Newsom. Let's talk about it. He might have sounded like he had a plan, but Newsom really wasn't sure what his next steps should be. A simple press release or proclamation wouldn't be enough, he knew. Whatever they did would have to be big. They needed to grab the attention of the President of the United States, and then really piss him off. Newsom was back in the office and ready to brainstorm the next day, January 21st. Kawa brought in Joyce Neustadt, the mayor's public policy director, and an out lesbian raising a teenager with her partner Susan. Neustadt's background was a little different from Kawa's. She grew up inside of a 1960s social experiment called Rochdale Village, the world's largest housing cooperative and the first racially integrated housing project in New York City. The 6,000-family colony was designed by suburbanization mastermind Robert Moses and utopian anarchist Abraham Kazan to house African-American families alongside Jewish union members. Her father was a unionized butcher and Holocaust survivor. The community there instilled a strong sense of social justice in Neustadt from an early age. But marriage wasn't exactly on her radar when she joined the Newsom administration. At that time, establishing a working family's tax credit was one of her top priorities, not exactly the kind of work that draws national headlines. Yet here they were, all sitting around a table in the mayor's office, trying to figure out what the next step should be. Do we do a press release? asked Newsom, but that was an obvious non-starter, since nothing could be easier for President Bush to ignore than an irrelevant memo from a newly minted mayor of whom most of the country had never even heard. But what else could they do? Pass a resolution? Circulate a petition? Go on talk radio? Giant puppets? San Francisco is a city that never met a political gesture it wasn't willing to try, but the mayor and his staff knew that weird symbolic protests wouldn't get much more than an eye roll in D.C., That first meeting ended with a list of ideas that they all knew wouldn't work. But the conversation wasn't over. The team just couldn't get over the unfairness of it all. There had to be something, anything, that they could do. Newsom, in particular, stood over his day-old memory from the House of Representatives, surrounded by the cruel cheers of anti-gay legislators. He just couldn't stand to let them have the last word, particularly when he just won the toughest political fight of his life to represent the very people they were trying to hurt. He'd grown up in San Francisco. He knew the real human stories and the suffering that marriage discrimination caused. And that's when it hit him. You know what we should do, Newsom recalled thinking? We should put a human face on all this. We should see if there's a couple that would be willing to get married. Just one was all they'd need. The next day, Kawa was at his desk next door to the mayor's office. Newstat poked her head around the corner. Hey, she said, the mayor wants to tell you something. This was still in the earliest days of the administration, and Newsom could have needed his chief of staff's attention on any mundane nuts and bolts issue, from sewer rates to a ribbon cutting at a preschool. Instead, when Kawa walked into the mayor's office, Newsom looked at him and said, I want to start issuing same-sex marriage licenses. Kawa took a deep breath. Okay, he said. There was a pause. Can I call Kate Kendall? he asked. You can call, said Newsom, but we're going to be doing this. Kate was sitting in a car in front of her daughter's school when her cell phone rang that afternoon. She'd only met Kawa a few times in passing, and had never interacted with Newsom at all. She couldn't imagine why the mayor's office would be calling. Kate, Kawa began in his thick, tough guy accent, I'm just calling to give you a heads up that on Monday morning, the mayor's going to begin issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. She was stunned. 
Marriage simply was not on the agenda yet. Not for another few years. The plan to pass a California marriage bill had just gone completely off the rails after Governor Gray Davis had been recalled a year earlier, replaced against all odds by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nobody was ready for a move like this. Whoa, she said when she found her voice. Whoa, wait, 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 Steve, that's... I really appreciate the mayor's gesture, but gosh, I'm not really sure about this. Looming in Kate's mind were several potential disaster scenarios, all of which had come true in other states. Most prominent was the Bowers decision, in which the U.S. Supreme Court upheld laws that criminalized sex between people of the same gender. In a disastrous case of misjudged timing, the lawsuit had been brought years before the Supreme Court was ready to rule in favor of LGBT equality, and it had set the movement back by a decade or more. Then there was the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, shamefully signed by Bill Clinton in 1996 in response to Nania Ingenor's headway in Hawaii, and protested to no avail by Mike Marshall. At the same time, states were passing mini-domas of their own to halt the progress that LGBTs were making. The gay community simply wasn't prepared for that backlash, and so any minor advances they made in the 90s were often met by even larger setbacks. Kawa listened to Kendall's concerns. They were identical to his own, and he was as alarmed as she was. But he never let on. Okay, Kate, she recalled him saying after she'd voiced her opposition. I appreciate your thoughts, but I just want to be clear. On Monday morning, the mayor is issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. When the conversation was over, Kate sat back, electrified and astounded and not sure she could actually believe what was about to happen. It was all she could do to shake off her astonishment and run into the school to pick up her daughter before making a flurry of phone calls to her colleagues. Within the mayor's innermost ring of advisors, both Kawa and Neustadt were gay, and both were in long-term relationships. But neither one exactly leapt out of their seat to volunteer for marriage. Kawa was particularly alarmed by the idea. I just don't think you should do this, Newsom recalled him saying. It's not necessary. We don't need... Why are you doing this? Everything's going great. Life's good. You just won the mayor's race. Kate was also unsure about whether the risk was worth it. She'd grown up Mormon in Utah and came out as a feminist before she came out as a lesbian. What I came to see marriage as being was, in many situations, not good for women. Not liberating. Not freeing, she said. I put it out of my mind as any possible option. She certainly had no plans to marry her partner, Sandy. Kawa echoed Kate's sentiments. When you were growing up, you probably imagined getting married, having a wedding reception, Newsom recalled him saying. Those weren't even things that I could get into my brain. They were never prospects, possibilities. All this emotion is coming up, and I don't like it. San Francisco Deputy Attorney Terry Stewart, an out lesbian whose office would have to respond to the legal fallout, had an even stronger reaction. We were kind of pulling our hair out, she said. The initial reaction was one of terror. Word was getting around. Newsom was starting to field calls from friends, LGBT leaders, and high-ranking officials in the Democratic Party, all of whom presented Newsom with a perfectly reasonable question. What the hell are you guys thinking? What was needed, everyone agreed, was more time to figure out exactly what their strategy should be. In the meantime, Newsom's office emailed County Clerk Nancy Alfaro, an independent elected official who would be responsible for issuing the licenses. In essence, the letter was, what would it take to begin the process of sanctioning same-sex marriage licenses, said Newsom. And we thought it would give us a little time to keep organizing the legal frame and deal with the calls that were now coming, because rumors were coming out. Newsom figured that Nancy would need to consult with attorneys, giving him more time to craft a response to everyone who was questioning his plan. To his dismay, she emailed back within a few hours. Oh, it won't take much, he remembered her writing. I can just go to the computer screen and where it says bride and groom, I'll just change it to applicant one and applicant two. We were like, come on, Newsom laughed. Shit. The following Sunday afternoon, Kate was still undergoing a mental argument over whether marriage was possible or even a good idea. A friend called, and they got into a heated debate. 
Kate, what are you guys doing? Her friend asked in exasperation. This is history-making. This is, like, amazing. Why are you expressing any reservations at all? Look, said Kate, we've lived through moments where we damned the torpedoes and we got our head handed to us, where we set back laws a decade or two in a state because we filed an appeal when we probably should have held our fire, or we took a case before the injustice was so huge and we couldn't say no and we lose. And the setback when you lose in terms of litigation is not something you can just undo in 30 days. So you need only three or four of those experiences to feel kind of sobered in your enthusiasm for damning the torpedoes. But this was different. This was the mayor of a major national city, a young, promising politician with powerful ties to political power brokers. Just a month in Newsom's time as mayor, there were already predictions about his trajectory to governor of California, or president of the United States. And he was essentially begging them for an opportunity to participate in LGBT liberation. If Gavin, a heterosexual man, was willing to put his career on the line for a cause that had never even been his own, maybe it was time for queers to stop being so damn skittish. At some point, Kate decided, you just have to say game on. And so beginning Sunday afternoon, we were all in. She called Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon to see if they'd like to be the first couple married. Del and Phil were national icons of equality, two determined ladies born in the first half of the 1920s, the founders of one of the first lesbian advocacy groups in the country, the Daughters of Belitis. They named it for an obscure French lesbian literary reference in order to avoid harassment. If anyone asked us, we could always say we belonged to a poetry club, they later wrote. Together, they founded The Ladder, America's first lesbian newsletter. Nothing was ever accomplished by hiding in a dark corner, Dell wrote in the first issue in 1956. Why not discard the hermitage for the heritage that awaits any red-blooded American woman who dares claim it? Dell and Phil happily accepted Kate's invitation, and on February 12th, the two women made their way up the steps of City Hall in sensible blue and purple pantsuits. An army of trembling city staff greeted them, whisking the two women off to a back room on the first floor while Kate crouched over a table, writing a check to cover their application fee. My heart is pounding, said Assessor Mabel Tang, who was to conduct the wedding ceremony. I've never done anything like this before. Everybody was being totally officious and very tightly wound, said Kate. This would have to go completely perfectly in order to survive the inevitable challenge. We didn't want to act like we were just pulling a marriage license out of a crackerjack box. Nancy Alfaro ran through the paperwork with the couple, gathering signatures and checking ID. She handed them the standard stack of informational brochures. This is a list of family planning and pregnancy clinics, she said. Phyllis burst into laughter while Dell raised an eyebrow. A few minutes later, Dell and Phil were standing in front of Mabel Tang, hands clasped. No one had thought to bring a ring, so a camerawoman who was documenting the event lent them theirs. We are gathered here today, Mabel began, and everyone started to cry. I cannot believe I am lucky enough to be a witness, Kate thought to herself, tears streaming down her face just in time to be captured in a particularly unflattering and now famous photo. I was there. Dell and Phil were more than just icons of a movement to her. They were her friends and mentors. They were also advanced in years, and everyone present knew that it was only a matter of time before it was too late for them to have the opportunity to stand in City Hall and be wed. At the same moment that the wedding was happening, Molly McKay had just arrived outside City Hall, joining up with a small group of protesters. She knew nothing about the secret wedding plans. By now, grassroots marriage equality activists in San Francisco had developed a regular annual routine around Valentine's Day. Every year, they'd walk up to the counter. Every year, they'd ask for a license. And every year, they'd be turned away, issue a defiant press release, and continue their quiet, mostly overlooked work. I'm doing the marriage counter license thing, Molly told her boss that morning as she headed out the door. I'll be back in an hour. Gavin paced nervously upstairs in his office. 
He didn't want to be present for the wedding because it might appear to be a political stunt. Though they'd managed to keep word of their plans under wraps, there was always the possibility that a rumor might have reached the wrong ears, and he'd position staff outside the building to watch for some opponent approaching to stop them. There was a knock on the giant double door of his office. He swung it open to see a semicircle of red-eyed staff surrounding two tiny women holding a marriage license, escorted by Joyce Neustadt. Newsom is a startlingly tall man, and Dell and Phil barely reached his shoulder as he leaned down to hug them. "'Ask them what they've been up to this morning,' said Kate. "'Is this it?' he asked, beaming at the license. "'The first license issued to a gay couple in California history, "'and the first in the nation issued with the full support of a city government.' "'Filled out, the seal, everything's real!' he exclaimed. "'How do you feel?' "'Okay,' said Phyllis. "'She looked a little dazed, but everyone was starting to calm down. "'It felt like the point in a wedding after the ceremony, "'when everyone loosens their tie, lets down their hair, "'and starts sniffing around for a buffet.' "'Gavin handed them a copy of the Constitution.' Thank you for making these words real, he'd written inside the cover. Wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you, said Phyllis. Long overdue, said San Francisco's brand new mayor. I don't know why it took me 34 days. I saw more media trucks than I've ever seen, Molly McKay commented to her friend Andy Wong when she arrived at City Hall. She was wearing a lacy white wedding dress, as she had at every single marriage rally for the last five years. Locally, Molly's dresses had become a symbol of the movement ever since she and Davina had motorcycled down Market Street. Every few months, she'd buy a new bridal gown, wear it to protest until the hem was frayed and dark from marching, and then run out and buy another. Andy didn't seem to hear her observation. Molly, there's no protest today, he said. Oh, shit, she said. Did we forget the permit? He's marrying us, said Andy. Gay people are getting married. Dell and Phil are in there right now getting married. Oh, my God, Molly gasped. Her phone started to ring, but she didn't answer. She needed to reach Davina. Once they were over the initial shock, queer couples from all over the city dropped everything to rush to City Hall. Within a few hours, a line at the door began to swell, and the clerk's office discovered that its ticketing system, which could only count to 100, was completely insufficient. Mom, guess what? Molly shouted into her phone in the clerk's office, huddled with Davina moments after Mark Leno married them. Davina and I are legally married! Have a nice rally, her mother replied. Before the weddings, one of Steve Kawa's anxieties was that if the city invited gay and lesbian couples to apply for licenses, the community would be too afraid or simply not interested in taking them up on the offer. Neither turned out to be the case. Even after Dell and Phyllis got married and we walked out onto the steps of City Hall, I didn't appreciate that we were in a totally changed dynamic, Kate reflected, until a few days later when I drove past City Hall and it was ringed around several blocks with people standing in line to get marriage licenses. By the end of the first day, they'd married over a hundred couples. The next day, over three hundred. Then four hundred the day after that. A line stretched around the block, day and night, with thousands of people traveling from all over the world. Couples pitched tents, and City Hall stayed open through weekends, staffers volunteering to remain at their posts for hours to cope with demand. There was this we're-eloping-at-City-Hall kind of vibe, recalled Jared Scherer, a longtime city resident. His friends, Brian and EJ, called him at home a few days after the wedding started. They were huddled in a drizzle-soaked line outside City Hall, and they were going to need a witness. He dropped everything. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world, to be asked to be a witness at their wedding, he said. He rushed to City Hall, stopping only briefly on the way to pick up a pink Gerber daisy. The line shuffled couples from one station to another in a whirlwind of paperwork. It was almost like a car factory, Jared remembered. Are you sure? Are you ready? Brian and EJ kept asking each other. Oh my god, this is so crazy, I can't believe we're doing this. They'd only been dating for a year. And then, they were standing at the top of a balcony, the couple clutching a single pink flower between them, bawling as the commissioner fed them the words of their vows. No one knew what was going to happen with these licenses, Jared recalled, but everyone knew this was the right thing to do, and no one cared. 
His friend's spur-of-the-moment ceremony was the first City Hall wedding that Jared had ever been to, but he'd soon personally witness hundreds more. Marrying people was the most amazing expression of joy and love I had ever seen, Joyce Neustadt said later. I miss it. City Hall was a different place. It was really, really special. I can liken it to gold rush time, Molly recalled. It was this golden moment of equality. All the hardness and struggles were just gone. Gavin Newsom was like the big brother you always wished you had, standing up to the bullies and taking all kinds of heat. The San Francisco marriages went on for weeks, and though the crowds dwindled a bit after the initial surge, the steady stream of couples just kept coming. I remember the lines. At the time that all this was happening, I was relatively new in town, just out of college. I lived up on a hill near the University of San Francisco and worked downtown. My bus took me past City Hall every day, and I'd stare out the window at the line, wondering what it was like to be ready for marriage. James and I met around 2000 at Emerson College, and though we were both dating other people at the time, we realized that we looked forward to being around each other more than we ever had with anyone else. At the time, he was making puppets out of found objects and playing a lot of Final Fantasy, and it was clear to me that this was the most awesome person I had ever met. Whenever I walked home at night from class or from my part-time job at a camera store, I'd look up at the window of his room to see if the light was on, hoping that he'd be awake and available to hang out. Later, I found out that before he learned my name, he referred to me as the cutest boy. Our first date wasn't quite a date. I needed a subject for a photography class and asked James if I could take pictures of him wandering around some empty classrooms. Of course, what I really wanted to do was touch him, but I was far too shy. Gazing at him through the camera was as close as I dared come. I don't think I've ever told him that. Well, now he knows. I moved to California in 2002, and he followed me as my boyfriend. For a year or two, we pretended that we were living two totally independent lives while we dated, and even maintained separate apartments, but the truth was that we spent every day together, explored our new city together, ate every dinner together. He let me cook him some truly terrible meals every single night for years before I got the hang of a kitchen. During our first night in the city, I was hit with a terrible migraine while we explored North Beach. He took me by the hand and led me to a convenience store, bought a bag of ice and paper towels, and administered cold compresses to my head while holding my hand as we sat on the curb of the parking lot. While I was unemployed and making cookies every day, he came home from work and told me, You know, if you had told me that I would be living this life a few years ago, I would never have believed it. We also evolved a sarcastic, derisive rapport that must have sounded a little horrifying to outsiders. Insulting each other was our idea of sweet nothings, such as when I called him to say, Hey, stupid, and he answered, Hello, crap face. I'd make fun of his small feet, he'd point out my weird birthmark, I'd roll my eyes at his piles of dirty laundry, he'd refer to my decorating style as clown collage. The harsher it got, the more I reveled in this banter, because it tapped into my greatest anxiety, that I was unlovable, and revealed it to be ridiculous. Sure, he could call me crapface, but then when I accidentally banged my lip and drew some blood, he got anxious and said, Do you want me to stay home from work tomorrow so I can kiss you all day? Clearly, he liked me. And I liked him. So why weren't we standing in that line outside City Hall? Shortly after Valentine's Day, we were watching a cute little news segment about adorable proposals, and I asked him, When are you going to propose to me? He laughed. Why would I propose to you? He said, hugging me. I laughed, too. It was a good insult, and I wished I thought of it first. But I also felt just a little twinge of alarm. We were in love, but had never talked about making a lifelong promise to each other. Was James serious about not wanting to propose to me? After all, we'd been together for four years. What was he waiting for? But to be fair, I wasn't sure if I was ready for marriage yet either. 
For most of my adult life, it had been completely unavailable. And suddenly, out of nowhere, we could just ride a bus a few blocks, stand in the rain for a while, and then, bam, we'd be hitched. The mayor had redefined marriage, not for straight people, but for LGBTs. From the moment that Phyllis and Dell were wed, marriage stopped being a joke or a hypothetical or a cause for the community to dream about. Now, it was a contract. It could change our lives. It was real. Whether he was joking or serious about proposing, James was probably right to have not jumped headlong into marriage the moment the opportunity presented itself. And then, a month after the weddings began, it no longer mattered whether or not we were ready to get married. Opponents who had been scrambling through one court or another to stop the weddings finally found a sympathetic ear at the California Supreme Court. The weddings had to stop, the justices ruled. Worse yet, the Supreme Court wrote that San Francisco had to track down all of the thousands of couples who were married and let them know that they weren't anymore. Their licenses meant nothing. Kate knew that a ruling was imminent and had her phone nearby at all times. A staffer called her in the middle of a haircut to let her know that the court had issued its injunction, preventing the city from issuing more licenses. But the justices had also suggested that someone might want to file a lawsuit to test the constitutionality of Prop 22, Pete Knight's marriage ban. Over at City Hall, Deputy City Attorney Terry Stewart got the news at the same time, dispassionately reading the decision as one of her colleagues burst into tears. Emotional reactions would be widespread, but Stewart knew what she had to do. Put those feelings on hold, get to work, and file that lawsuit. There'd be time to cry later. Now, nobody hesitated. For the last month, the mayor's office, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, Lambda Legal, and the ACLU had been preparing for the moment. They had plaintiffs lined up, a complaint drafted, and a network of attorneys ready to spring into action. They filed paperwork at 9.15 a.m. the next morning. There was no pause this time, no need to sit back, agonize, compose emails, or reconsider. After everything they'd been through, there was no longer any doubt. The fight for gay marriage was worthy of the old battle cry, damn the torpedoes. They'd made the commitment, and they were going to see it through. I only met Gavin once, at a little co-working space south of Market, about a decade after the marriages. He had left the mayor's office in 2009 to run for governor, but found his campaign overshadowed when former Governor Jerry Brown, who had signed California's ban on marriage equality into law in the 1970s, decided he'd like to be governor again and stomped into the race. Newsom dropped out and ran for lieutenant governor instead. He won, but California's lieutenant governor position is so politically powerless that he found himself with almost no responsibilities. His office had been defunded to the point that there wasn't even a budget for printing business cards. He might be able to run for governor when Brown's turn was done, but for the time being, he'd have to wait in a holding position. We sat in the lounge of the shared office, tech kids swarming around us, and chatted about the winter of love as the 2004 marriages had come to be known. He told me a story about how he was once sitting in a little airport in Missoula, Montana, when a stranger spotted him across the waiting area. Are you that mayor of San Francisco? The man called out. "Uh Uh-oh, Newsom thought. Come here, said the guy. I want to meet you. Yeah, nice to see you, said Newsom, assuming the broad smile of a wary politician. I just want to tell you, the man said, coming closer. Sixteen years ago, I didn't talk to my son. And what you did out there. Oh, God, what? Newsom thought, his smile locked in place. You brought me back together with him, the man said. Huh, thought Newsom as a stranger hugged him. Holy shit. As he told me this story, he leaned forward in his chair, which was far too small for his lanky frame. I have zero regrets, he said. We never would have done it a year later, because we had a midterm congressional campaign. And then two years later, oh, we got to take back the Senate. Oh, next year we've got to get Kerry re-elected. It's never the right time to do the right thing when it comes to politics and politicians. He waved his hand dismissively, which means it's always the right time to do the right thing. 
This week we have a pop filter on the microphone because last time I had a lot of plosive popping. Pop filter? You're my father? Oh, God. Are you trying to make a pop secret reference to Arrested Development? That did not land. No. That... Uh, took flight. It <laughs> flew right on I'm out of here. Flew on out of here. Yeah. Oh, did you just make a Golden Girls reference? Yes. <laughs> we'll leave it to the to the listeners to decide which one of those incredibly obscure references landed worse. <laughs> what would you do if I proposed to you on the podcast? I would push my chair back. I would stand up. I would walk out and get a hamburger until you came to your senses, and then I would return. Would you bring me a hamburger? No, I would eat oh, a hamburger. That's the worst part. Yes. Oh, how terribly romantic. Isn't it? Uh, I have an exciting story of a proposal from, uh, do you remember Stuart Gaffney? I do. We made a video featuring him and his partner, something or other. John. Thank you. It was a very loving but very urgent wedding proposal. (laughs) We heard from Stuart back in Chapter 1 of the podcast. So his partner John was at City Hall for the marriage counteraction in 2004, and Stuart was a few blocks away at work. I just said, I'm on my way, and I slammed the phone down, and I ran out of the office. There was a feeling like this was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And then there was also the feeling that, what if we missed it? Uh, There wasn't a moment to lose. These marriages could be stopped at any moment. You know, what if we miss our chance? So it was just an overwhelming flood of emotions. When I got to City Hall, and I met my blushing groom on the steps, and then we... I had a moment where we stopped and we realized, how do you get married? You know, we've been to so many weddings, but we didn't know how you get married. It it seemed like it was something that was always going to be for someone else and not for us. And here's John Lewis, his husband. And when we heard the words, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the state of California, uh, we just felt something transform within us um, because it was a moment where we first experienced our government as treating us as equal human beings, as gay people. And we hadn't quite realized uh, what we'd been missing and how much we sort of assumed. And then when we exchanged vows and we said, I do, it was just like the whole world disappeared. It was just the two of us. And that that was all that mattered. At that moment, you know, we finally knew what it felt like. It felt like a miracle. And that's Molly McKay, the grassroots organizer we've been hearing from for the last few episodes. It felt like, you know, you had girded yourself up for this ridiculously long slog. You know, you were ready for whatever it would take, however long. And then all of a sudden, the ground just opened up. I remember standing on the steps and watching Phil and Dell come out of the city hall in their matching pantsuits, grinning ear to ear with their marriage license and just like weeping. Well, I don't think I slept much because I was actually picking Dell and Phyllis up to take them to City Hall. That's Kate Kendall with the National Center for Lesbian Rights. She played a key role in organizing those 2004 marriages. So the last thing I did before uh, I went to bed was uh, I called them just to confirm, okay, I'm picking you up. Well, Joyce Neustadt, that, who was the mayor's policy director, called me and said, they need to, they should be at City Hall earlier. So instead of picking them up at 9 and having them at City Hall at 9.30 or so pick them up at 8, and let's get, them, let's get them in earlier. And I thought, okay, whatever you guys say. So I had to call Dell and Phyllis and say, oh, it turns out I'm going to be picking you up at 8 rather than 9. And, and it was Phyllis who answered the phone, and she said, well, Katie, we don't get up that early or something like that. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry to do this to you. 
I first met them when I started at NCLR in 1994 as legal director because obviously I'd read about them. I'd heard about them as a young lesbian. You know, they were founding organizations and writing newsletters at a time when most people would never publicly acknowledge who they were. They had just, I felt like they made my life possible. And so I made the pilgrimage to their little it's really kind of a shack, their little house right at the, where Castro dead ends up the top of a steep hill, very steep. I've even, I've, I've biked it, but it's taken everything possible and every possible leg muscle to get to the top of that hill. Made a pilgrimage to their home and had lunch with them uh, one day to meet them. And that started a tradition really of, of once a month or every six weeks or so, I would make a date, grab sandwiches and go up and have lunch with them. You know, it, look, it was a great privilege to be so close to them and to go pick them up, and they were all ready to go, and we drove down to City Hall, and, and I got we got to go into the inner sanctums of City Hall. It was hard to sleep because I knew that what we were about to do was going to be history-making, and it was going to totally change the trajectory of the marriage conversation and it could also backfire terribly. So it was the sense of knowing you're about to do something huge and having no idea where it was going to land. This chapter opens like a gothic horror novel. It, it, doesn't it start with Gavin Newsom up in the rafters, peering down on Bush? Well, he's not, like, he's not hanging from the claws at the ends of his feet. Are you sure? Because it sounds like Bush is his angel of music, and he's going to swoop down and abscond with him. You know, I never asked. I just assumed that he was seated, but uh, he could be dangling like Kiefer Sutherland in Lost Boys. Does he dangle? Oh, he does dangle. He does dangle. He does dangle. He dangled. All right. Well, there's a Lost Boys and a Sweeney Todd reference for you, everyone. Hope you enjoyed those. Hope you're keeping track on your bingo cards. Oh, you said, I'm going to take you to task. You said that the State of the Union isn't so much an aspect of government as it is for a bid for attention. Is it not one of the only duties of the president outlined in the Constitution that oh, from time to right. time he shall say, what's up? <laughs> it's specifically those words in the Constitution. It is. The founding fathers were really into the um, Budweiser frogs. Yes. They wrote the Constitution during the Super Bowl. <laughs> yes. Which explains all the stains, the beer stains on it, the nacho cheese. Uh, yes, you're quite right. Uh, it is It is outlined as a responsibility of the president. I don't know that, that it serves much of a purpose, like, in terms of, of actual functioning of government, but I guess it's nice to have. Well, it's, it's sort of like a shareholder's report, right? Like, that every sure. so often the executive is supposed to get in front of everyone and say what's going on and then presumably if it was like a shareholders meeting you'd be able to talk back to him but that's not really how it goes oh well what's his name there's that guy who yelled you lie at him do you remember that a few years ago oh yeah <laughs> do you remember pelosi's look she's yeah. sitting behind him and she like this like daggers from her eyes look maybe it's better that it's not a dialogue well you know i compare it to question time which is uh, awfully fun to watch mm-hmm. uh, the british one uh, the san francisco one is a joke but uh san francisco has a question time <sighs> it's terrible yeah. they all have to submit their questions in advance and so all he does the puppet mayor in san francisco <laughs> you know you know the guy ed lee who is just installed <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and and he's continually funded by whatever developers need need to control the government there uh so these are he, some shocking accusations oh yeah real shock no one's ever said this before mm. so he just reads a prepared speech they ask him questions that they prepared he reads a speech that he's prepared and everyone goes home they need a san francisco version of yes prime minister they do or a san francisco vision version of house of cards house of cox <laughs> yeah that is it that's what it would be kevin Surely. spacey would still star in it 
Next question. So after the the bushening, there was、uh, no mention of marriage from the Democratic Party. Why? Why so tight lipped, Pelosi? Why you keeping them nice and tight? Because <laughs>、uh, they're not stupid. They knew what that would do to them.、Uh, Americans were pretty sharply divided on that topic. That was not a winning issue for Democrats. If you wanted to win votes. Uh, you, as a Democrat, you did not bring up marriage equality. If you wanted to stand for、uh, principle, you could have. But、uh, you know, in politics, you have a choice to make: principle or,、uh, or, or I don't know. What's what's something? I need something catchy that starts with a P. That means winning an election. Um, pavictory. Principle <laughs> or pavictory? Exactly. Yes, pavictory for for all. Was there no Democrat in a safe seat who you know the party could sort of? I, I, I mean. You know, obviously, you wouldn't have maybe the leadership coming out in favor of marriage equality, but could they not have found somebody in a district where it was pretty much on lock? Oh, sure, yeah, Barney Frank. I mean, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it would have been totally easy. But was you know, he in favor of equality? Did he、yeah. talk about it?、Uh, he did. He did. He talked about it in the nineties. Oh, okay. Yeah, <clears throat> and Bernie Sanders was talking about.、It. He was talking about a lot of things, and people weren't paying attention. Yeah, you know, someone could have could have come out and said said something about that. But I think the Democrats just had other priorities at the time. And you know, you've you've got a, a limited number of minutes on the news shows, and. Uh, if you're the Democratic leadership and you're organizing everyone's talking points, and you know you have to make a decision, well, do we want to send the person out to talk about、uh, the Iraq War? Or do we want to send somebody out to talk about gay marriage? Well, gay marriage is going to kill us, so、uh, never mind. Well, sure. I mean, the war was probably more of a, a, a. I don't know if it was a winning issue at the time, but it was winninger than marriage equality. But the president of the United States had just proposed amending the Constitution, which is a like. The proposition, or I mean, I don't know if he proposed it or just strongly suggested it, but、uh, the president suggesting an amendment to the Constitution does seem like a pretty big deal, even if it's a topic you don't want to talk about. You know, it doesn't get amended all that often, so、mm-hmm. uh, you would think that would spur some kind of discussion. But to just go like silent about it. Seems a little odd to me. Yeah. Well, my best guess there is that Democrats probably thought it was too risky to to mention it because as soon as they go for that bait that he is dangling,、uh, then it's open season for Republicans to say, "Look at these perverted Democrats who want to get people to get married." Democrats were afraid that they felt that they were more vulnerable on that topic and just wanted to ignore it and hope that nobody would talk about it.、Uh, well, was that a good decision? I don't know. I think.、Um, You know, it's borne out by the way that Gavin Newsom was treated、uh, after these marriages happened.、Um, it was like a ghost town. It was, you know, like he turns around and the tumbleweed blows through town.、Uh, nobody wanted to sit next to him after that. Well, when you say nobody,、uh, I mean obviously people in San Francisco and the couples were very excited. Yeah.、Um, so who who is this nobody who didn't national, want anything? National Democratic leadership ran from Gavin after these marriages. So what was? How would you characterize his relationship with the party after he started marrying people? Frosty, oh, uh, delicious! Of, you dip a French fry in. <laughs> nom, nom, nom. Gavin was really savaged on,、um, on like cable news, and he, he was sort of an icon of oh the loony left.、Uh, a lot of people blamed him for Kerry losing the election, which I think is totally unfair. It was the windsurfing? It was yes, yeah, there are a lot of things. Yeah, Gavin kept expecting the cavalry to ride in to the Democratic Party, National Democratic Party, to, to back him up, defend him, and they were like,、oh, we got other stuff to talk about. Was this around the time he did his famous like "Ready or not, here I come. I'm gonna gay marry everybody" statement? No, we'll get to that. That's、oh, okay. coming. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. wasn't wasn't this wasn't this time? But it's coming. All right. It wasn't his his big bend over and take it America <laughs> moment. <laughs> no, that line. I've heard that so many times. It's wide open now. 
Whether you like it or not. I hear it in my sleep. Well. As I'm sure Gavin does too. Well, he's, he's you also whispering. Well, you also hear it just before you go to sleep, if you know what I mean. <laughs> From Kevin Spacey. <laughs> he's not the one. No, I'm, I'm confusing him with Rip Torn, crawling through bathroom windows and biting people. <laughs> yeah. Although, who knows? Maybe they've done it together. Or is that one of the Quades? A lot of trouble. Uh, yeah. A lot of, uh, trouble in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, who's, or was it Margot Kidder? I don't know. Oh, no, she just was found in a bush without any teeth. Uh, it was Rip Taylor who, who knocked her teeth out. Oh, and then he bit other people with them. With them. That's true. You heard it here first, folks. You ever seen a celebrity that could take a bite out of you? Oh, another obscure cultural reference. It's The Simpsons. Check that one off. <laughs> so was it, who was it, the city attorney or somebody was going through the papers and determined that uh, in order to marry people, all it would take was changing the name, or the changing the term bride yeah. and groom to yeah, I believe, applicant? I believe it was the clerk, Nancy. Nancy oh, clerk. Al- Alfaro? Alfano? I can't remember her name, but Nancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, I believe it was the clerk, clerk's office. Well, see, that's what always strikes me is when people talk about how fundamentally <laughs> same-sex marriage will alter marriage, that when it's literally you just change the pronouns and everything else in our understanding of marriage remains exactly the same. It just seems like it's an absurd argument to say that this is some huge rewriting of laws or changing of things, because it's just a pronoun swap, or if not a pronoun, a a gendered term swap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, this radical social experiment. Uh, No, it's just changing a form. That has happened before, and we've survived, so Mm -hmm. I think it'll be all right. Jared picked a pink Gerber daisy. What is that? What? Are you kidding me? Is that like a, a baby food? What is that? It's just is a it type of a flower. sex toy? I don't oh. know what it's named. Oh, you thought, what did you, what were you a picture? I don't know. He went to a wedding and he picked up a pink Gerber baby or something. I don't know what he got. <laughs> it's a little daisy. It's a, it's, it's pink. It's got big petals. It's oh. pretty. Where'd he get it? I don't know. Up his ass. <laughs> Was it on private property? Is this a crime? I'm going to guess he went to a flower store. Oh, okay. He wasn't just rummaging in someone's yard like the rhubarb lady? I guess it's possible. Yes. <laughs> oh, you say that during that that photo experiment you did where you chased me around in dark alleys taking pictures of oh, me with right, garbage um that that you never told me that that was some sort of of yearning yes you did did i yeah you're oh. taking artistic license although it doesn't surprise me that you don't remember uh, i forget things sometimes really when did i tell you i feel like multiple occasions oh now so. you know <laughs> <laughs> now i know and so do uh, uh a bunch of other people they know you're a, a leering creep uh, yes that's true everyone i've ever photographed now has to wonder did he actually want to touch me through the camera well you do in every case i don't yes. think there's anyone you haven't you photographed who you didn't want to to grope yes if i photographed you it's my way of groping you you mentioned the truly terrible meals you used to prepare yeah. um you and and i know people who can independently verify this no you, need to uh, call character <laughs> witnesses you, this is my podcast you i did not anymore baby <laughs> um you used to make a roux with everything this, this is your life you're you're doing to me <laughs> why did every meal include a roux <sighs> because i knew how to make one all you have to do is melt a bunch of butter and poke it with a with a wooden thing and then throw some throw some flour on top. So every yes, it was very easy to make those those meals. Sure, but not every meal calls for a roux. No, but uh, every meal needs to be made, and and that's what I knew how to make. So it's just a lot of sauces. All I was eating was sauces when I first when I first got into the real, real world. That's true. One time I was sick, and I asked for oh, for fuck's <laughs> sake! I asked you to make me chicken soup. Yes, you and did. I watched with horror as you kept cooking and cooking and cooking, and then it turned into gravy. And you just had a, a bowl of gravy. <laughs> Look, gravy is just thick soup. That's what you were saying. You are saying that's how you make soup. First you make the gravy, and then you add water. 
My understanding of kitchen tricks was not as advanced as it is today. How many times have I made you kitchen soup since? Chicken soup. <laughs> for Look the teenage soul. I am. You are. Oh, what have you done to me? You need chicken soup for your soul. I do. I do before I clobber you. <laughs> uh, well, this won't help. Um, <laughs> you, you say that around the time these marriages were taking place, you were wondering if I seriously didn't want to propose to you. Did You must have known I didn't want to re- propose at that point, right? I had been nothing but anti-marriage. Our whole courtship, yes. which continues to this day. Yes, yes. I assumed that at some point that might soften, uh, that at some point you might say, well, it's been long enough now. Or I, I see the appeal with all these people around us getting married. Uh, I had a concern. I had a serious concern that there was something wrong with our relationship. Uh, you know, I, I at the time, you know, it was still, how long had we been going out at that point? At most, I think we'd known each other about four years. We'd been living together about two. It might have been a little longer than that, actually. But um, but still, I mean, I think I, I'd been pretty consistently anti-marriage. So you, were you the lady from the rom-com who was like, oh, I'll fix them? Yes. Yes, I think I was. Hmm. I was engaging in, in what Joseph Campbell calls erotic irony. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you're using that term correctly, but yes, I, I love am. you characterizing our relationship as, as erotic rem- irony. Yes, <laughs> uh, I am. It's, are you? It's, no, it's it's when you um, are in, in love with somebody, but you feel as though you must change them. Okay. Uh, and so I don't think I was deliberately saying like, well, he's he's perfect, but I, I got to fix him. I don't think I was consciously going through that process, but I think I was engaging in uh, a sort of a misguided thought process of I can change his mind on this I can fix him on this I'll just I'll, I'll show him sure that you were like living a, a guys and dolls scenario where uh, I don't know a person could come down with a cold sure sure that's uh, not you, you know there's that one character in it who, sue me sue me what can you sue do me screw me yeah yes but they're very much in love he doesn't want to marry her and she said oh a person could develop a cough if she, mm-hmm. she's you know she's she's sick with worry that he, they're not married right. that was me i was sick with worry and by the end she has tuberculosis yes gosh she's she's satine she's she's yeah. overcome with with consumption mm-hmm. it becomes la bohème <laughs> That's our life. Yeah. Yes. Act one is guys and dolls. Act two, <laughs> La Boheme. La Boheme is the one where they're all dying, right? That Rent was based on? Yeah. Okay, okay. I want to make sure I was talking about the right thing. I also referenced Moulin Rouge in there, so I know. we've got we've got a full dance card of references. Uh-oh, battery on the iPad's getting low, so all we right. better rush through this. <laughs> yeah, come um, on, pick it up. I know. Do you have anything else to say about expecting me to propose, or is that it? Uh, I don't, do you have anything to say? <laughs> Uh, this is going to be the most disappointing podcast ever. People are <laughs> listening to it from the beginning, thinking it's all going to culminate in some kind of ring coming out of your butt. Yeah, yeah, like Sonic. <laughs> uh, I have seen deviant art with that situation. We got to come up with. Uh, we got to think of a surprise ending for this podcast. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we can keep stringing listeners along, and <laughs> it can... was purgatory all along, even though we made it really clear it wasn't purgatory. <laughs> Turns out uh, this whole time I've been made of chocolate. I don't think that would be a surprise. So Gavin's quote here at the end, uh, it's never the right time to do the right thing when it comes to politics and politicians, which means it's always the right time to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. That is so good. Did he use it for the first time on you or is that in his bag of tricks? Oh, that's his bag. Gavin is one big bag of tricks. He's great. I I love him. I think he's fantastic. Uh, Now, if someone goes back to your record of Esophist, were you always a Gavin (laughs) Newsom fan? Uh, I believe in tough love with the people you love. Uh, I was not uh, a huge fan of his handling of Muni. 
<laughs> oh. Don't get me started. That's right. Please don't get me started. Matthew wrote scripts to capture all the buses in real time, uh, capture their, their bus routes like that code. were published yeah, to I the wrote, internet. Yeah, I wrote automator scripts. Um, and then he would just compile videos of the buses going around the city and get really angry when they all bunched up. Yep. yep. And then he would share those on YouTube uh, and, and Twitter. You set up a Twitter account to tweet the buses, didn't you? Oh, yeah, because Muni at the time didn't have a Twitter account, and so... So I set up this automated thing that whenever there was a disruption on Muni, it would tweet out what the disruption was. Um, I, they do have an account now. I don't know how useful it is because I don't care. <laughs> That's true. As soon Not as true. I got a bike, I stopped caring about Muni. That's quite true. And then you became obsessed with bike with Bikes, lanes. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I just want to get where I'm going. I like Gavin Newsom. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very good at what he is, which is a great bag of political tricks. You know, I saw him once. This was on, on Deviz. They were opening the first parklet in San Francisco. And uh, he was there to, to cut the ribbon or whatever it was. And uh, I saw just the mastery of, of his politicking when he's standing there just, you know, talking to reporters. And he saw some guy standing off to the side. And it was like watching Leslie Nope because he turns to the guy and he's like, oh, hey, Marty, or whatever his name was. Hey, Marty, how you doing? How's the graffiti on the roof of your building been? Did you get that ladder installed? And he's like, oh, no, still a problem, still a problem. He's like, well, let's see. Let's." And he called over the, the cop who was standing nearby, knew the cop by name, first name, which isn't on his badge or his little name tag. He's like, hey, oh, Joe, what do you think? You think we can get some patrols going for this guy's place? Because he's still got this graffiti going on. I mean, he knew everybody's name. He knew their issue. He knew where in the city it was. He knew, like, the building that needed a ladder he's great gavin is is just made for politics and uh, i'm excited to see where he goes from lieutenant governor because there are things he could be doing that he can't do in that office so i I look forward to him doing more in another office whatever that winds up being you had a similar story to that uh about carol burnett that will be on an upcoming episode of your podcast there i am fascinated by people with with great memories because i can't remember my own name um or who you are. <laughs> but yeah, I've got a beautiful story about Carol Burnett remembering somebody 40 years after they wrote her uh, a little letter and, and she wrote them back and it was this very moving thing. And 40 years later, they encountered each other again. And for no, there was no reason for her to remember this, but she did and everyone cried. So uh, listen to The Sewers of Paris, my other podcast for that story coming up. Uh, this was such a good story. It was with Mark Finley, uh, local San Francisco, uh, local Seattle performer who just has billions, literally billions of amazing stories to tell about being in showbiz in New York and and getting lunch with Sandra Bernhard and uh, going to, he was 14 years old when he was accepted to this, uh, the country's leading uh, acting program. Uh, He had to finish high school early so that he could go to college at 14 to, to become an actor. Just, like, the most incredible stories he has. And then, I mean, we haven't even talked yet about... Uh, we're going to do another interview. We haven't even talked yet about uh, his experience um, with HIV in the 80s and people that he lost and, and how he managed to survive despite ha- having terrible prognosis. I mean, I think it was 86 when, when, when he was diagnosed. And he's still with us today despite uh, some some pretty shocking treatment. Well, there you have it. And if you're not listening to the series of Paris, what's wrong with you? Well, clearly you just haven't heard about it yet. So go to thesewersofparis.com to listen and subscribe. But that is not this podcast. This is Defining Marriage. And, did, and Quite right. Question time for you is over. Absolutely. No more questions. Right. But listeners may have questions. And if they do, where can they send them? Yes, please send me your questions and your observations and your obscure cultural references. If you want to make a statement about Blossom or something, you can tweet at me, at Matt Baum. You can also leave a review on iTunes for this podcast. Oh, here's a review from Richer Life Ty. 
The book is fascinating alone, yet the playful banter at the end of each chapter is amazing, entertaining, and informative. Well, you will be amazed by how confusing this week <laughs> yes. was. We have informed you about, what did we have? Sweeney Todd, The Simpsons, and um, there was another, oh, Golden Girls, that incredibly obscure, you're about ready to fly on out of here, aren't you? <laughs> reference from Golden Girls. Now that sounded like Kevin Spacey. That sounded like House of Cards. <laughs> it was. It was supposed to be Blanche, but I'll I'll allow that it was Kevin Spacey doing his Blanche impression. He has now that. One. Yeah, he absolutely does. And what is on the gay agenda for next week's Defining Marriage? Next week, we're going to jump ahead four years to the fallout from the 2004 weddings. We're going to jump ahead to 2008. Might have been a busy year. I, I can't really remember if anything important happened then. Uh, we'll also be talking a little bit more about our private lives, you and I. Oh, God. Um, so, I don't, if, if you listened in order, you would know I am not reading ahead. I'm reading the book for the first time, so I don't know what's in store, and I will be very cross with you if you reveal things about my underpants. <laughs> There's nothing to reveal because you're not wearing any. Oh, God. That is a that is a fiction because that is a, all I'm wearing. <laughs> That's true. So you don't have any actual pants. But if you, the listener, want to show that you're a better person than I, you can read ahead. Uh, you can get the book on Amazon. Yes, you almost certainly are a better person than James. Uh, you can leave me some feedback there. I've had some lovely, lovely reviews. Here's a review from Oscar M. Raimondo. Matt Baum is the definitive voice when it comes to documenting the fight for marriage equality. He is using his voice to amplify others in his touching book that is more personal than preachy. Yay! Thank you, Oscar. Oscar is himself a wonderful writer. Uh, I'm familiar with his work. He lives in San Francisco and he uh, is a fabulous journalist and, and novelist. You can look up Oscar Raimondo uh, to find some of his work. And what of your work? Yes, you can find The Sewers of Paris at sewersofparis.com. You can also check out my YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com slash mattbaum for my videos about LGBT issues and entertainment. Uh, just in the last week, I've put up some videos about the movie In and Out, uh, another about the game Gone Home, some videos about uh, Kim Davis and the debates that happened last week, and also one about The Golden Girls, just celebrated their 30th birthday. And let's not forget your little striptease, uh, your Metal Gear Solid Five performance. Good heavens, yes. The most obscure of obscure cultural references to listeners of this podcast. Uh, if you like uh, marriage equality, then you probably love this first-person stealth shooter. It is absolutely not that. Oh, you're right. It's not first-person. You're always standing behind him, isn't it? It is tactical yes. espionage Tac action. Yes. There Metal Gear Solid, a Hideo Kojima production. <laughs> tactical espionage, what was it? Action. action. That uh, used to be above the title. Really? Tactical espionage action, Metal Gear Solid. genre? Sure. I mean, I, I, don't, it's, I don't know if they made fetch happen with that. Okay. And that will be the final reference. <laughs> Thank you. Until next time, friends. By the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast over. <laughs> <laughs>